Shit Platypus Says, episode 21. Senator Sanders, I do want to be clear here. You're saying that you never told Senator Warren that a woman could not win the election. That is correct. Senator Warren, what did you think when Senator Sanders told you a woman could not win the election? (laughs) I disagreed. Elizabeth Warren has been calling out Bernie Sanders for saying that he didn't think a woman could win the presidency, right? Yeah. Such, it was really lame. It was a real spectacle because CNN had essentially created this hula baloo, this kind of fake news. Fake news, Sophia. Fake news. I mean, she's, she's, making, a, she's making a bid to win, and this is like a last-ditch attempt to, to win the candidacy on her part. Mm-hmm. Um, and she's clinging to um, claims of sexism. Um, Mm -hmm. and it's embarrassing and I don't think anyone cares and I feel like this is the last 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 cry of kind of these claims to identity politics or gender discrimination before it kind of all goes under oh dear god I hope so and this is it even in in the UK I went to like a talk last week on the the failure of the Labour Party and the left um who are grieving this loss are making um a saying that we should learn from the right like learn from Thatcher and Farage in terms of tactics and that kind of siding with the liberal hysteria that said we should like vote for a re-referendum on Brexit is over and I think you have this kind of like turning away from... They're turning away from the, you mean the liberal elite or or the urban intelligentsia? Yeah, but intelligentsia, like like no one cares about um, Elizabeth Warren, except CNN. And the New York Times, who recently um, endorsed both Warren and Koblikar, Mm -hmm. or as they consider it, Mm -hmm. the moderate and the radical. Well, I mean, Trump looks good right now. Honestly, like if that's, if I want to sum it up, you know, the impeachment's a joke. Everybody knows it. You know, I remember at the debate when they asked about the impeachment, whether it was going to make Trump look good or not. Amy Koblikar had a really lame response. She said, uh, this is about decency. And this impeachment trial is about decency. And she gave uh, an example from McCarthyism that there was uh, some man who, a common guy, stood up to McCarthy and said, like, you know, have you no decency, sir? And and that this was very powerful. And that that's what they're doing, the Democrats, when they're taking Trump to task. You know, so all of this to me just makes Trump look good. I, I... And also his claims that um, Warren is Pocahontas, like his, his, his Trump's claims that she's a liar anyway, kind of, she's, she's doing a good job. <laughs> Bitch, she is a liar. The woman is a pathological liar. I was just reviewing the lies of Elizabeth Warren. Some of them were just like political lies, you know, like she claimed that her campaign was 100% grassroots funded, whereas it's clearly not the case. She had over millions from Senate campaign that was funded by rich people. Do you know what the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau is? It's a, it's a it's like an institution within government that is supposed to protect consumers within the financial sector. And Warren led the formation of this body, like it was her baby. And it was a response to the 2007-2008 financial crisis. So this was supposed to rectify, right, some great wrong. Because she was like the great, whatever, like she considered herself to be some kind of architect of Occupy, right? Like, we forget this. Um, And 
she put bankers in the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. So, you know, like her whole shtick was about how like government and the banks are too close. And then she herself, so I don't know, she's a, she's a liar, uh, but maybe that's not the most important like political point to make about her, but like specifically like what she's lying about mm. and presenting herself as this like, you know, friend of the working masses or whatever, mm-hmm. and, and being a woman of color. Mm-hmm. Did you know that Harvard Law School uh, claims her as its first woman of color? Well, yeah, and she didn't, she didn't dispute the claim. No, because the bitch is Pocahontas, right? Yeah. <laughs> and Yeah. And this is the main thing that she's pulling that she's pulling on. She's just it's just mere um it's just wretched tactics like pulling on the trend that is like identity politics so she can clamber up the political ladder. Um Trump's going to win anyway. Trump's going to win anyway. She, I mean that's the appeal to the urban elite if you will the identity politics i'm a woman i'm a woman of color but then there's like this other part where she's like i'm against corruption Mm -hmm. i'm against like government corruption like i'm about giving government back to the people like that's her shtick you know so i guess you gotta like take her uh her record also we should also be clear that um so Sanders, who the a lot of the I think a lot of the American left is getting behind, like Jacobin magazine, this kind of thing. Oh yeah. Um is is not is not the left either. Uh more welfare state is is not the left. You mean the New Deal. The new New Deal. Yeah. Just to for that to be on record as well. Yeah, they sent out an email called What a Bernie Sanders presidency would look like. Who's this? Jacobin. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And the idea was to go beyond, quote unquote, piecemeal liberal solutions. It would empower workers to push the agenda that would empower workers and save the planet. Well, the the, the state is, um, as Marx recognized, Bonapartist. Right. It's a symptom of the crisis of bourgeois society. It's nothing to do with the, the left in and of itself. As far as revolutionary socialism or the idea of the dictatorship of the proletariat or the class rule and the issue of class rule, then I guess one would have to get into the details of what it means to say that there's an expansion of workers' power. So that's, I think, the claim that Jackman's making, which I think is most dubious. I think. Um, but it's going to be Trump. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I can't see any way out of this for the Democratic Party right now. And they've just been self-sabotaging for the past few years. Yeah. And they're also not going to nominate Bernie Sanders. Yeah. Did you see the Tucker Carlson? I did. What did he say? Remind me. Uh, he was calling out CNN. He was calling out CNN because, you know, of the bullshit propaganda for the Democratic Party. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And he was like, oh, you're going to turn Bernie into a sexist now? Is that what's going on? Mm-hmm. Right? He was like, the media now is endorsing Warren. You know, they're going to bat for her. This election is coming up fast, faster than you may realize. How fast? Well, six months from tomorrow, the leadership of the Democratic Party will gather on the floor of a basketball arena in Milwaukee and formally nominate their presidential candidate. Now, at this point, as of right now, there is a strong chance that nominee will be Bernie Sanders. If that happens, if Sanders becomes the official leader of the Democratic Party, there will be chaos. The party's funders on Wall Street will recoil in terror at what's to come. 
They'll be joined in that terror by the establishment class in New York and Los Angeles, as well as by the entire intel and foreign policy bureaucracies in Washington. And all of them, all of these people demand to know one thing. How'd this happen? How did Bernie Sanders become the Democratic nominee? And that's a good question. Americans may dislike politicians, but they hate the media more. If forced to choose between Bernie Sanders and CNN, most people will go with Bernie. This was before the New York Times supported Warren. I guess I find what's so um, striking with this is how how like blind these like candidates are, like how like how blind the Democratic Party's been to reality. The way they're kind of flogging a dead horse, but they don't they can't see it. The question returns, is the Sander movement giving new life to the Democratic Party as an institution that's connected to some rising constituency from Occupy onward, right? Because I don't think that the leadership of the party has any new tricks up its sleeve, you know? It's the new generation of socialists, quote unquote, um, the new American socialists that are going to give a lifeline to the party. I think their support for Sanders, it has to do with what they wrote, which is workers' power and the expansion of a certain kind of labor constituency mm -hmm. that then, you know, thinks of socialism in a different way. Um, I think that's what they're hinging their bets on as per that, you know, email about what a Sanders presidency would look mm -hmm. like. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's the idea, I think. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, it's lame. Historically, when held up to history, it's lame. To wrap it up, just to like bring it back, like we started talking about Sanders because you rightly said, okay, we're, we're talking about Warren now, but like let it be said, right? That the Sanders campaign is also not on the left. Or else we look like we sound like we're endorsing Sanders against like a lying Elizabeth Warren, which is. Well, let it be known that Platypus would not be endorsing anyone. Anyone. Ever. Yeah, it's true. Yeah, that that's not how this organization works. It's all about electoralism as well for the US and UK left. Like it's all about we failed in, in getting um, Corbyn in, into government or whatever. And that's what it's about. There's no there's no even idea of civil society organizing that you even had like with the Panthers or something. It's all just about like electing Corbyn. What's gonna what's your sense of what's gonna happen now? Like are people disillusioned? Like has this been a real blow to the point that organizations are gonna suffer on the British left? I don't know. It's like so some momentum who were uh pushing behind well, trying to get Corbyn into government. Um and now saying they're getting behind Rebecca Long Bailey. They're like, okay, we did well. He did really well. He lost, but we, we were almost there, almost there. Um, so now we need the next most left person in the, in the Labour Party to succeed him so she can continue his socialist tradition. Um, and so there's a sense on the British left that she now needs to take his place so that, so that everything is not lost. Um, it's just nuts. And so in this case, momentum was professionalized like by the party, right? The panel that I was at the other night um, on uh, discussing after the what happens now after the election, like Tarika Lee was there. One of the guys that founded Navarra Media was there. And they're all kind of getting behind Rebecca Long Bailey as um, as Corbyn's successor. It's crazy. They've just moved on. They're ready for the next mm -hmm. candidate. Uh, in a sense, they're acting sort of 
like professional party politicians, right? Like this one didn't work. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so who's using whom? We'll see. Uh, yeah. So on that down note, mm-hmm. I guess that's it. Um, 2020 other news. Uh, Dave Chappelle won the Mark Twain prize. Good for Dave Chappelle. I think we all need to recognize that he shut down the haters. So yeah, it's an election year guys. So, uh, get ready Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. for more hysterics, more hysterics. All right. Bye. Bye. Welcome to Shit Platypus Says, your one-stop shop for the symptomology, necrology, and epidemiology on the left. I'm your host, Pamela Nogales, and I was joined there by my co-host, Sophia Freeman. On this episode, I sit down with our Manchester members, David Mountain and Mike Atkinson, on another installment of Shit Platypus Does, where we hear from members leading platypus reading groups, coffee breaks, and teach-ins around the globe. David and Mike fill us in about the left in Manchester, their attitudes towards Brexit, and the upcoming platypus teaching, What the Bloody Hell is the Dialectic? If you'd like to learn more about platypus in Manchester, check out the episode description for links and upcoming events. Then we have a quick check-in with Aaron Haygood, the editor-in-chief of the Platypus Review, the monthly newspaper of the Platypus-affiliated society, who will let us know about the articles in the latest issue and the upcoming back-to-school lineup for the February issue, issue 123. That's right, we have 123 issues, all available in hard copy or online at platypus1917.org. That is the word platypus followed by the numeral 1917.org. As always, send us your questions, criticism, commentary to our email, says at gmail.com. And if you're into the podcast, share it and hook us up with a review. You know, that thing that you do when you like something and it's good. Mm-hmm. All right, here we go. First episode, 2020. David, hi Mike. Hello. Hello. David and Mike are our members from Manchester and they're joining us for the segment of Shit Platypus Does. And yeah, I had some questions for you guys. First is, how did Platypus make it to Manchester? So I'm David and um, I was a member of Platypus in Goldsmiths in London for a number of years as a student there. And I became the chapter head of the chapter there. And I was basically, I was leaving London. I was moving up to Manchester to start a PhD. And, um, you know, I thought uh, there's quite a lot of leftists in Manchester. It's quite a big city. And so, funnily enough, two friends of mine who I'd been introduced to by a friend who was kind of in the orbit of Platypus in London. Mm -hmm. So he had introduced me to two friends of his who lived in Manchester, which was really nice. And they were they'd heard all about platypus through on the grapevine. So not from any platypus members 
or even attendees. Mm-hmm. And they kind of just got me to start a reading group. And so that's how it originally started. It was quite a low-key reading group with just a few friends. Um, was it at the university? Yeah, it was, uh, out of convenience. The University of Manchester. So that that was kind of the pre-year zero, sort of pre-history of Platypus Manchester. Then then Mike came along. Once Mike came along, it was kind of like we had together the momentum and the energy to really do it seriously. Mm-hmm. I mean, we also had society status there, which made it really much easier to promote ourselves on the Student Union website mm-hmm. and uh, at the Pressures Fairs. So it all kind of came together at the right time. And we've been going for now a year and a half. So Mike, what drove you to Platypus? How did you find us? I have, um, I've been a leftist for some time. I mean, I've always been sort of ostensibly on the left, whatever that meant at a certain, at each point in time sort of thing. Um, so through issues at a previous job, uh, being introduced to Marxism at university, but obviously these weren't, um, solid engagements with Marxism with actually sitting down and dealing with the question of what Marxism is, what is the left? Um, it was more sort of a, a knee-jerk reaction to capitalism is bad, therefore anti-capitalism, um, or identitarian leftism through things like Tumblr and things like that, which I think is is very uh, it is it's kind of rife among students these days in in the UK. So that was sort of like where I really started, but um, I'd become disillusioned with that side of things and have been reading more Adorno and more Marx uh, while at university. Uh, I did my master's degree in uh, 2016, 2017, and then didn't really have anything after that. I hadn't managed to get in to do a PhD, and uh, I felt kind of out of touch, out of the loop. Uh, And in a fit of despair one day, I googled Adorno Reading Group Manchester. I remember those were the exact (laughs) terms, and Platypus appeared uh, as either the first or second result. The, The UK chapter, now I got in touch, David said that he'd started the group six months before, running it from Christmas to Easter. And this was this was 2018, and he was just about ready to start the first full syllabus in September of that year. Uh, so he cycled up to Rochdale to meet me and discussed it with me. And uh, from what he said, I thought that, yeah, this is for me. I'm interested in the theoretical side of things. I'd, I'd read Adorno's arguments about actionism. And, you know, w- w- with a bit of a sort of self-consciousness, I, I think that maybe... Um, Within me, there's there's not just a sort of recognition of action as being perhaps counterproductive right now, but also uh, there is probably a certain fear of taking place in action as well. So I look back and I think maybe part of me was looking for a theoretical organisation. I could bury my head in the sand sort of thing. Now, of course, Platypus is not that. Um, for me, that's been the best thing about it. it. It's it's the most intellectually stimulating thing I've ever taken part in, and that includes uh the four years of university that I did, it's 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 been something I've found that it, it tries to push you beyond yourself. I mean that it's it's made me understand what the left actually is or rather could be uh, and how Marxism is a philosophy of freedom and not just an academic perspective or method. It's been really, really sort of... It's, it's been a, a game changer for me. This, this past year and a half mm. has really sort of... Uh, I can look back now and look at the readings of Marx and Adorno and others that I did in the past and, and just think how wrong I got them um, and how Platypus has really helped me to understand those thinkers and to go back over it and to do it all over again. And uh, I'm really thankful for that. It's It's been a really sort of, it's been a really good year and a half. Yeah. So if I can follow up on that, uh, how did Platypus challenge your existing presumptions of what the left is? Certainly it, um, how can I put this? 
it's confirmed my suspicions about the identitarian left and uh but but at the same time i wasn't sort of completely out of that area yet, out of the sort of new leftist area i i was during my undergraduate years i was very engaged with situationism uh i think that's a that's a common thing for people to say as well undergraduate situationists etc uh i hadn't read much marx uh but i was beset with what what Platypus calls the Stalinophobia, obviously not just criticisms of Stalin, but by extension, this this dismissal of Lenin as being authoritarian, this dismissal of the idea of the Vanguard Party, it's helped me to move beyond mm. that. So, like when you say that you were engaging with this these ideas, like, were you just reading Guy Debord? Were you talking to other people about it? Or yeah, I mean, it was a bit of both, really. I, there were people at uni who'd heard of them they they weren't like massively popular or anything but i started reading uh, i hadn't actually read the society of the spectacle at that point i was reading uh ken nab's collection um situationist international anthology and the various pieces on art because at that time i was doing an english degree and my main interests were sort of aesthetics mm. so obviously i was reading aesthetic theory by adorno mm -hmm. but reading the sort of situationist arguments about why how art is is out of date we need to leave it behind etc etc uh and finding them like the, the arguments they were having about participation about what the world could be finding them really rather enticing uh and so i was reading them i was talking mm -hmm. about them to a friend of mine um a guy I'm very much still in touch with, uh, and we did a presentation on them in one class, uh, and we were really interested in that. Um, I wrote my undergraduate dissertation about how how poetry could sort of become something participatory. I mean, I now look back at things like that and thought, sort of think it was very, very vulgar. It's not. I wouldn't call it vulgar Marxism because it's not even that. But it, it I guess it sort of that was the direction I was moving in. I was sort of going. I, I feel like I've always been going towards where I am now with it um, in terms of engaging with dialectics, trying mm -hmm. to learn about things like that, learning about Adorno. Did you encounter an anti-Lenin critique? Because you said that was something mm. that you were working through in Platypus. Um, not explicitly in the Situationist, no. Uh, it, okay. it, it was more in myself like even before i read the situationists this was something just like i thought okay mm. i'm interested in marxism but there is no way there is no way i can go anywhere near the russian revolution there's no way i can go anywhere near lenin i can't or trotsky or stalin or whatever i was just like i cannot go down that road that's that's not communism that's not leftism i can't touch it so at first i went down anarcho communism that was like the first thing for me when i first started to become uh get into leftism etc mm -hmm. but yeah it was more just a sort of fear in myself. Mm -hmm. You were also responsible for organizing an anti-austerity protest before Platypus? Yes, this was uh, May 2015. It was an anti-austerity protest at Piccadilly Gardens in Manchester uh, with a good friend of mine. The, the idea was um, we wanted to try and build uh, grassroots movements. We we didn't have anything specific planned. We just wanted to sort of okay. This is the grounding idea. We want to sort of engage people, talk to people, and say, look, we cannot rely on the authorities to help us when we're down. We cannot rely on um, mm -hmm. social care or whatever to help the homeless. We need to start mm -hmm. helping each other. Um, so we thought, okay, let's try and build grassroots movements and do that. It started off. We I I was just. 
I was annoyed that the Conservatives had got in. I thought, okay, I'm going to start a, a Facebook event. Let's have a protest in Piccadilly Gardens. Let, let's kick off sort of thing. And uh, within about mm-hmm. three days, it had gained about 3,000 attendees. And I was way, way, wow. way over my head with it. Um, so the People's Assembly got in touch with us. Um, and they offered to help us out with it. Uh, kind of an odd group. They're not really anti-capitalist, I would say. I mean, they they sort of claim to be. I think they're more about anti-austerity. I see. They okay. seem to me to be very much about sloganeering public relations. At one of their meetings a few years ago, I, I kept attending the meetings for a while after mm. after the protest, and I proposed occupying a building mm-hmm. and using it to take care of the homeless. Now... Is this an activity I propose right now? I don't know. I think there are issues. You know, it's probably mm. completely uh, irresponsible just to open a building without any sort of uh, knowledge of how to look after people who are homeless and are experiencing those difficulties and just take them into this building and say, right, done with it. It's a, it's a very sort of, it was a very sort of juvenile idea, but I, I just wanted to do, it was one of those moments where I thought I, I want to do something. So I guess this was my moment, my anti-theory moment. I want to do something. I want to, act and do something uh so i I proposed this to them and they very quickly turned it into uh, a banner drop in an effort to get a tv spot what they wanted to do was so they took my idea they wanted to go into this building uh with a massive banner drop it out of the window get in the newspapers get on tv and go home so it, it it removed any of the sort of uh homeless care elements that I wanted to put mm-hmm. into it and just became a sort of PR exercise and and that was really when I started to move away from them and and while it wasn't immediately a move towards full on marxism it was mm-hmm. uh, it, I suppose it was a sort of encounter with what the left is today what it mm-hmm. what, what's left of it now if that makes sense mm-hmm. I think that's a good segue to asking you guys about what the left looks like in Manchester. Mm. So a lot of what Platypus does is engage the the symptom. You know, that's the way that we talk about it. Engage the, the, the remnants of the left in the present, the ruins and what they look like today. And as an outsider, as, you know, as an American, for me, talking about Manchester just brings up these ideas of an old working class, mm. like... Uh, British constituency. So, uh, is is any of that still around? What is what does the left look like in Manchester? I, I've kind of had time to compare it with London mm-hmm. to some mm-hmm. extent. Um, the organised left, meaning the kind of uh, revolutionary left, with which has a kind of uh, a shared uh, old um, kind of rhetorical and political uh, educational knowledge. Um, which we engage in platypus is much more present in London than in Manchester. There are still groups in Manchester um, such as the Socialist Party, Socialist Alternative, but their presence is more minimal. What's stronger in Manchester and actually seems from my very sort of partial experience to be more influential is a more kind of anarchistic strand. So, for mm. example, in Manchester Momentum, so where, where I came from at, Go- at Goldsmiths, the local branch of Momentum, Lewisham Momentum, has long been understood, you know, so Momentum for listeners who might not be so familiar was, was set up to kind of support Corbyn after he was elected to the Labour Party. And it's been a long-standing kind of... Uh, sort of 
outgrowth in a way of the Labour Party representing the Labour left since 2016 or whenever it was. And Lewisham Momentum in South London was initially kind of run by this quite orthodox Trotskyist Alliance for Workers Liberty group. Um, and then since then, there's been these big battles between them and some kind of ultra identitarian kind of people who are kind of Stalinist. Manchester Momentum, by contrast, maybe it has a bit of the kind of Stalinist-y um, rhetoric, ice pick, kind of anti-Trotskyist stuff. Um, but more seriously, they have links, I think, to this kind of anarchist collective. And part of that is to do with, I think, a big leftist space um, a big leftist kind of building that's used for a lot of events that's kind of a bit of a hub called Partisan Collective, a lot of parties. And I think that's a kind of melting pot for these ideas. They had an anarchist book fair that I went to with a couple of Platypus Manchester attendees and I saw a fair representation of anarchists. What I'm trying to say is that a lot of the leftists in Manchester who are really behind Corbyn, so by leftists I don't hear, I don't mean kind of orthodox mm-hmm, Marxists, mm-hmm. but people who think they're quite radical and a bit more radical than just Corbyn himself, Mm -hmm, perhaps, mm -hmm. but really... I think it's those people who are kind of influenced by uh, anarchistic um, and Stalinistic ideas in a way that seems a bit more powerful as a force than I noticed in London. What has the response to Brexit been like? I felt coming from London that the Lexit, the left ex Brexity kind of almost like the vibe is different. There is more of a tolerance to that. Mm-hmm. There's less of the kind of like London, Southeast, middle-class rem- remaining sign of assumption. Mm-hmm. You can get away with talking about Brexit from a leftist perspective in Manchester. You'll still find opposition, but you'll find also solidarity. Unions, are they strong there or do they have a presence? I mean, the UK, the unions are quite, most of them are quite bureaucratic and quite big. Mm-hmm. I don't think they're seen as particularly revolutionary. The, there was just a few months ago a big strike of striking academics at the University of Manchester and other universities organised by UCU, the University Colleges mm-hmm. Union. And some of the lecturers were quite visible and, you know, using their Twitter status to get a lot of notice from the media with banners and um, funny costumes and stuff. But what's maybe more interesting is the um, student leftists. Well, they came out quite strongly in support of the striking Mm -hmm. lecturers. Mm -hmm. Mike? Yeah, I mean, with the People's Assembly, that was, looking back, I feel that was really rather nostalgic for sort of welfare statism, post-war, 50s, 60s welfare statism. Uh, A lot of the People's Assembly members are unionists, as in, they work for various unions, be that uh, Unite, which is uh, it's the UK's largest union. It is. It's an all-encompassing union. There was a guy there, uh, I forget, I think he was called Stephen. He was like the head of the Trade Union Council mm-hmm. in Manchester. He attended these meetings well, as well. assembly is funded by trade, big trade unions. While from the outside, as David said, unions are definitely not seen as a kind of revolutionary force. Uh, and they are indeed very bureaucratic within the People's Assembly and within the unions themselves, they really do, I think, see themselves as this sort of anti-capitalist 
primarily anti-conservative, as in the Conservative mm. Party mm. movement. Mm. Unions have always had quite a strong voice in Labour leadership elections. Mm. Yes. So they are kind of recognised as somehow constitutive parts of the democracy of the Labour Party itself. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So what um, the, what are the ways in which you've interacted with the left or what kind of activities has Platypus done in Manchester and what are you planning on doing? The primary thing that we've been doing has been more internally educationally focused. Our reading group has been well attended and become the main focus of people, students that we're engaging. As for engaging with the left in Manchester, it's it's been a bit harder to motivate attendees of the reading group to kind of move out of this academic understanding of Marxism and go and like look at it in real life. We have gone to a few meetings, particularly one of the Socialist Alternative, which is it was Socialist Alternative, a split from the recent split of the Socialist Party of England and Wales, mm. and attending um, anarchist book fairs and meetings with students, other leftist student societies, namely the same Socialist Party before it split, and the IMT, the International Marxist Tendency, who go by the Marxist Students Federation. The Grantites? Yeah. So you've been meeting with these groups, you've been attending some meetings, but it's difficult to move your reading group participants to actually um, engage with the existing left. And why why is that, you think? My view is that they're a really interested group of students and the level of discussion is, is really good. And that kind of the level of energy and engagement and debate and uh, learning is, is quite good. But... I think that means they probably take the readings relatively seriously. Maybe part of it is that um, we've had a new group since September and it's been, you know, the first half of our reading group syllabus, which is more on the kind of philosophical side of things. Mm -hmm. Um, And so actually talking about Marxism hasn't really happened all that much yet, but hopefully that could change in the Mm -hmm. coming semester. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so you've done a teaching. What was that like? Uh, so this was a, a teaching on Marx's concept of alienation. This was a few months ago, and this was principally prompted by my own engagement and fascination with the concept. And this is probably a result of situationism, this sort of uh, pri- perhaps wrongly prioritizing prioritizing this concept. I, I think this is the sort of this is something that's quite endemic, and I'm not sort of immune to that. So this is, but that was primarily the reason I did it. I wanted to engage with it and sort of explain to myself as well what it was actually saying rather than this sort of ostensible existentialist alienation that people tend to equate it with and uh, the very fact of not being able to recognize one's alienation from the world as itself Mm -hmm. a symptom of that alienation that went really well we also did a uh we did a walking tour. That oh, was the first right. big event that we organised. A walking tour based around Engels's mm-hmm. The Condition of the Working Class in England. He wrote that in Manchester. Um, and so we followed his sort of footsteps, really. Um, we went around the locations in the city centre described by Engels as, as closely as possible. We, we read out parts of Engels's original text in the yes. correct places. Mm-hmm. Yes, it, yeah, it was quite... Um, how to describe it really I, I i personally was aiming for a sort of benny minion engagement with it and what i mean by that is this sort of uh the past feeding into the present the past as part of the present the past still present. so what was the walk like what are the sites that you visited there's an area in manchester called scotland and it's still called that now that the road is still there the 
street signs still there, etc. Uh, near near the River Irk, which nowadays passes beneath Victoria's train station, but in Engels' day was above ground. And we visited this area because this was a, a notorious area for slums mm-hmm. and um, for sort of these the the buildings that were built back then the working class housing which was only a brick thick by design so that it would only last a period of say 25 years before it it started to crumble and that was by design so that then they could evict uh, Mm. the tenants etc and we visited this area and how it's now it's been completely transformed it's it's um uh, one of our attendees uh from Poland noted that uh, Manchester compared say to some cities in Europe has been built upwards and I think that's because cities in the UK are sort of more concentrated given the size of the country but uh, it was really evident here the way you could sort of see almost like layers of rock where things had been built up and so maybe you could see an old wall from where there was at Mm. one time slums and then on top of that there was a concrete wall and then on top of that you might get steel fencing or whatever and tarmac Mm -hmm. and it's just been sort of Mm -hmm. built up in layers over Mm -hmm. the years Uh, and this was something that we noted there's also um, the site of the old workhouse of which there is nothing left now um, which was underneath well the, the site of it is underneath where the current arena is, which is where concerts take place, etc. Um, and we visited this site and we read out Engels's description of the workhouse. Uh, but the most interesting thing to note about that area for the walk, I think, was the fact that uh, the workhouse, you've got the workhouse and then in the distance you've got the prison. And between those two places, there was a massive working class mm. area. Uh, sort of surrounded by these two places, sort of looking down on these working class slums. So you guys have a teach-in next week. Yeah, so the the title is What the Bloody Hell is the Dialectic? And this was prompted by discussions of the dialectic in the reading group and confusions that, I mean, that we all have to a certain extent. You know, there's, there's, no, there's not one of us in there with like a complete understanding of it. Um, but I'd read... Uh, Dono's lecture collection in Introduction to Dialectics, which really, really helped me, and I would advise anyone who's struggling with dialectics to pick that up and read it. Um, after listening to Ephraim's teaching on Labour and the Left, which was which was brilliant, um, mm-hmm. I thought, how can I integrate this into the wider Platypus project? So I'm working on the material for it right now, and I'm aiming to answer the question of why the dialectic has so fallen out of favour. Why do we find it so difficult to understand? Uh, and mm-hmm. what does this signify? about the concept of regression that we focus on how is the the the, the sort of um the degrading of the dialectic itself a symptom of this regression so i'm going to try and frame it like that to really try and bring it back to the platypus project of what we're trying to do why is this so essential i wonder if um you're reaching out to people on the left on campus or otherwise to come to your teaching it is mainly for attendees mm-hmm. i would say group. and um yeah, and but also people they can bring a, bring along. Attending left events and and connecting with the left is related to what happens in the reading group. It's I think it's important to um, come up against people on the left who have these different definitions of things like alienation and uh, and the dialectic and how they instrumentalize these concepts in their own political uh, their own political projects and and when one faces that what how one responds to that, how one engages with the historical remnants that, you know, like in the same way that you saw in that brick wall, like have been layered, right? So our own conception of alienation and clarification of dialectic is, is built on these ruins. And so we have to kind of deal with them as well because they're, they're still yes. walking around. 
Um, but it sounds yes. fascinating, and I look forward to hearing the recording. And I want to thank you guys for joining me to sit down and talk about what Platypus does in Manchester. And all the best luck to you all. Thanks a lot, Pam. Thank you. Bye. Thank you. Bye-bye. going Aaron. Hey Pam, it's good. How are you? Good. I wanted to have a short introduction to the issue of the Platypus Review from the December January issue, which is online now. You will find the link in the episode description. Tell us what's in the issue. Uh, yeah, so there are three main articles in the December January issue of the PR. The longest one and kind of I guess the headliner is 30 Years of 1989, which is the transcription of a panel that we hosted at the University of Chicago at our annual convention on April 5th, uh, 2019. And of course, Pam already knows this because she was the moderator. Sounds familiar. <laughs> Just a bit. Rings, maybe it rings a bell. And it had five panelists, uh, Robert Byrd, who's a former professor of mine, Patrick Quinn, John Abbott, John Batchel, and Earl Silbar. Um, people in the organization, after this panel was held, wanted to digest it further and wanted to give it a readership um, because people don't really sit down to listen to panels. I think often it's much easier to read things uh, than to you know have this whole chunk of time to listen to people talk in a conversation that you aren't really a part of. Before you uh, move on to the other ones, John Abbott, he's a UIC history professor and he's a former uh, Revolutionary Communist Party member. I remember him. Patrick Quinn was in solidarity. And John Batchel. The national chair of the Communist Party USA. Um, and then finally, Earl Silbar, um, who he's had kind of a storied political history. He's been in a lot of groups, but he used to be in the Progressive Labor Party around the time of the split in the SDS, actually, is when he was involved. You can read about that in one of our earlier issues. Yeah. He was in the SDS, Progressive Labor, he was a new yeah. left Maoist, and he's been on several panels in Chicago before. Yeah. So he's, you know, if you search his name on platypus1917.org, you'll find yeah. him around. Earl used to come to the reading groups in Platypus early days as well. And then I saw that Ethan, who was on this podcast, also has uh, an article on uh, the use and abuse of Nietzsche. Is that right? On the left? Yeah, for the left. So it's a play on the title of Nietzsche's work that's in the Platypus Delibus, which is on the use and abuse of history for life. <laughs> and so this is on the use and abuse of Nietzsche for the left. Very funny. Yeah. And last but not least, David Faze, who is in our Chicago chapter and wrote 1917 to 2017, The Death of the Left, back in 2017 for The Beaver, which is a publication at the London School of Economics. Um, and so we mm -hmm. republished it um, now. And part of the reason mm -hmm. that we decided to republish it was uh, marking, um, at least, you know, perhaps subtly, not overtly, um, the 100th anniversary of the Third International. Um, which mm -hmm. on the left really mm -hmm. wasn't discussed that much last year. Mm -hmm. um, I was kind of surprised. I mean, most of the big dates, like anniversaries, it always felt like Platypus was the only 
group discussing it. I mean, 1989 Mm -hmm. and then 1969, the breakup of the SDS. I didn't see anything about that outside of Platypus. Mm. And then the Third International, which we didn't address as explicitly, I suppose, as we could have. But that was also a big anniversary last year. Mm-hmm. And what's coming up in the next issue, in the February issue? February issues are back to school issue, and it is really going to be kind of zeroed in, I think, on a lot of the political questions that students are going to be asked um, when they get back to campus. Uh, so in the United States, that means they're going to be asked whether or not they will canvass for Bernie. Um, and in the UK, it means people will be talking about Brexit and the victory of Boris Johnson. Um, so we have a couple of articles from members of Platypus from all over the world that we're going to be publishing. So two from Chris Coutrone, one called Why Not Trump Again? So uh, I think anybody who has heard of Platypus online has probably heard of Why Not Trump, um, which is an article we published uh, back during the 2016 election that caused quite a stir. Um, And so this is Why Not Trump again. And then a short Mm -hmm. article he wrote about robots and sweatshops. And then we have a article that will be a translation of a teach-in given in German by Clint Montgomery. He just gave it uh, yesterday in Leipzig. Yep. This this uh, Leipzig conference, it's the German conference. Yeah, on the New Deal. And then we have two articles about the UK election. So the first is a write-up of a teach-in given by Ephraim Karlebach in London before the election um, with kind of a short introductory statement that he wrote after the election. And then we'll have an article by Viktor Kova that was originally published in Danish about the UK election also from the perspective of somebody in Europe and dealing with these questions about the EU and the recent EU elections. Mm -hmm. Um, And that was written after the UK election. So we will kind of cover Mm -hmm. um, from the point of view of various students involved in platypus around the world, uh, these mainstream uh, political questions. And I know usually Mm -hmm. in the PR, I think I try to publish a kind of a mixture of writers who are more kind of intimately involved in platypus and people who may just be contacts or leftists coming in contact with platypus for the first time. But this time I felt that these articles kind of taken together really give a picture of this wide geographical spread and this process Roughly, we could call it the crisis and passing of neoliberalism into post-neoliberalism as it's been experienced by students in platypus across the world. And so I think that it really doesn't embody necessarily platypus lines so much as digest an experience that people working on the project of platypus have had. And so that experience um, Mm -hmm. really comes from an engagement with the left and an engagement with the world. Um, So that's why I did it. Yeah, it's a back-to-school issue. So it's back to learning. Yeah, back-to-school issue. Just so people know that Platypus Review is open to submission, Uh, you can review the editorial statement and submission guidelines online and email the editor-in-chief, who's Aaron, at editor at platypus1917.org. That's the word platypus, followed by the numeral 1917.org. Thanks, Aaron. Thanks so much, Pam. Bye. Bye.
contact, learn more about or get involved with Platypus, and to access the entire back catalog of the Platypus Review, please visit us online at platypus1917.org. That's the word platypus followed by the numerals 1917.org.